Thanks for joining us at Faith. We hope the message you're about to hear encourages your day and draws you closer to Jesus. If you'd like to join us for service or find out more about the church, visit faith.church. That's faith.church. We're continuing the series on our year of the Bible. And we started in Genesis, and today we are in Psalms. And I hope you are following along in the app. You go to Uversion, you click on Year of the Bible, and every month we do a new installment so you can jump in and be a part of it. We have partnered with the Bible Project, and they have great videos in there. And so let me encourage you to be in the Word. Let it be a part of your life, your family. Read the Word, read the passage, maybe do it after dinner. Spend 10 minutes a day with your family, with yourself, studying the word, asking God to apply it to your life. And we have, we have some great stuff from our team that, that put the, uh, the content on there. So let me encourage you to do that. We've been on a journey though, as we've seen from Genesis, God's heart and plan for man. And that plan for mankind, humankind was to be in relationship with. That's why he made us. That's why he made you. That's why he created you. So he created you to be in a relationship with you, but something tragic happened in the garden. It's the great fall. Adam decided, I, I don't want what God, I don't want what, I don't want my life to be what God has called it to be. I want it to be something else. And the moment that Adam heard the invitation from Satan and he ate of the tree of, the, of, of knowledge of good and evil, he was saying, I don't really need God. I can be my own God. And from there, sin has impacted us. It impacted who we are. So everything from Adam forward was corrupted and stained by sin. So we've seen that in the scriptures, but we've also seen God's heart to redeem mankind. Today, we're going to be looking at a passage in Psalm 110. It's incredibly special. And this, is, this passage today, it's incredible because it is a conversation that's happening between God and Jesus. Found right in the middle of the Old Testament. Now, most people think God is mean old daddy God and doesn't like us and, and hates us. And his wrath is just trying to find some way to, to get to us and destroy us. And Jesus is trying to hold God. Oh, God. No, God. I, no, no. You, you hold up. I, I'll, I'll take care of them. And Jesus, you better take care of them because if not, I'm going to wipe them out. And that's who we think God is. But we forget it was God's idea to send his own son to redeem our sinful butts so that we can be in relationship with him. Amen? Sometimes words come out of my mouth. Then I go, did I just say butts? I did. I'm going to own it. Let's just keep going. And we find this heart of God in Psalm 110. It's one of the most fascinating psalms. It's also one of the most important Psalms because it reveals to you, reveals to you this truth that God has been pursuing you. God has had you on his mind from the beginning of time. That God himself, God himself has been pursuing you. He's been, he's been after you. He's been, he's been making a way to rescue you because he loves you. I hope you know that God adores you and loves you. Just for a good mental exercise today, let's all say together, God loves me. Let's say that, God loves me. But this Psalm 110, it's the most quoted in the New Testament. And we're going to read it in just a moment. But I want, you to, I want you to put yourself in the place of where David is. He's writing this Psalm. Mankind, humanity finds, himself, finds themselves corrupted, not because they did corrupt things. Now listen to me. Mankind was not corrupted because they did corrupt things. They did corrupt things because they were already corrupted. See, when, when, when sin entered the world, it changed our identity. Well, that's not fair. I agree. But that is the enemy that we have, Satan, that deceived Adam because the enemy wanted to destroy God's purpose for your life. We don't sin. And then because of that becomes sinful. We sin because we are sinful. Isn't that encouraging? 
this idea of sinner, it is in our DNA. It's our identity. It's our instinct. That's why you don't have to teach little kids how to get mad, pitch fits, scream, hit, bite. If they could form words, they'd curse at you too. You know they would. Why? Because they are born with a nature that is not pretty. And this idea is called the total depravity of mankind. You don't become a sinner, you're born a sinner. Because of Adam, as I've already mentioned, Adam chose to go his own way. Paul says in Romans 5.12, sin came into the world through one man, meaning Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men. This word is anthropos, which means right here, which means all mankind, male, female, all mankind, male, female, no other genders, male, female, just clarifying. But the reality, listen, you should clap more when I talk about Jesus redeeming us than those, those little statements. That's just, we just move on from that. But okay. So we also find Romans 5.15 says this, many died through one man's trespass. So this is, the, this is the, the status of us. Romans 5, 16, judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Romans 5, 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Romans 5, 18, the trespass, the sin of Adam, of that one led to condemnation for all men. Everybody say, all men. By the one man, verse 19, by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Man, this stinks. I mean, I don't have a choice. No, we're all born depraved. And so David's writing this psalm with this, with knowing all humanity is deprived. All humanity is stained by sin, which cannot be, could not be removed under the old covenant. The animal sacrifices of the law that we read about in the scriptures could not be removed. They could not remove sin. They could not remove the shame of sin. They could not remove the guilt of sin. All those, animal, all those sacrifices would do was push it forward. But the sin, the stain still remained. From Adam, sin entered our DNA. But God, everybody say, but God. This is the good part. But God, from the beginning, set in motion a plan to save us. To save us from sin. To save us from ourselves. And so mankind is corrupted when David is writing this, this psalm. By, corrupted by sin on a pathway to self-destruction. It's the same today. A person who rejects God by rejecting his son, Jesus Christ... A person who is living a life of sin is the furthest thing from free. It's the furthest thing from freedom than they could ever be. They are self-destructing. This is what sin does. And leading up to this psalm when David is writing, all the people of the nations rejected God. All the people in the nations chose to go their own way. God then selected his own. He chose a man named Abraham and he set him apart. And he gave promises to Abraham. And he chose Abraham to bring forth the answer to the world's problem, to humanity's problem. He chose Abraham that through his lineage, through his line, that one would come who would undo what sin has done in the lives of humanity. That one would come through Abraham's line who would crush the head of Satan. And so he chooses Abraham. The rest of the nations are worshiping other gods. But God chooses Abraham. And God sets this people apart that were called the Hebrews and they were called the Jews. For the purpose of bringing the one who would save us from what corrupts us. This is a good God that's not angry. He's not disgusted at you. 
He created you and his heart is broken at what sin has done in your life. And he, knowing you cannot do anything for yourselves, he engages himself to find a solution for your brokenness, for your sinfulness, for our identity. And he chooses to send his one and only son. The whole of the Old Testament, when you read through the scriptures, some people disagree with this, but it's, it's probably because they built a theology not on the whole uh, of scripture, on just some, some certain parts. The whole of scripture, the whole of the Old Testament was pointing to the one who would come and save the world. Now, I know not every word in the, in the Old Testament is about that one specific thing. I understand that. But we need to understand God's purpose. When you gather the, the, the trees of the Old Testament and you, and you look at them as they were created and, and written to look at, it makes up the forest that shouts the Messiah is coming. And that also, it gives you some glimpse, glimpses and some types and shadows of what this Messiah is going to look like. How do I know that? Well, it doesn't matter actually what I think. Jesus, after he had risen from the dead, he's, he's, he's talking and walking with two disciples on a road to a village named Emmaus. Jesus had veiled his appearance somehow. I don't know, but he's God. He can do whatever he wants. He veiled his appearance and they didn't know who he was. But later he revealed that he was Jesus, the risen Messiah. And he explains to them, he gets out, it's, it's, it explains to them from, from Genesis to Malachi, God's story and purpose for humanity was fulfilled in his life, in his sufferings. And he's, he's telling these disciples, hey, listen, listen, boys, you've been reading this book all wrong. It's actually, it's a story of an account that's pointing to redemption of God becoming human and coming down to redeem his creation. And at the center of that, all this story from Genesis to Malachi, Jesus is like, it's me. It's all about me. It's all about God's heart. It's all about me and the Father together, redeeming mankind. And so Jesus, Luke 24, says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that's where we're at today, must have been fulfilled. And Jesus has fulfilled it by his life, death, burial, and resurrection. So here in Psalm 10, the most important Psalm of all the Psalms, we have what David wrote, and I'm just going to read it. I'll read the whole psalm, and then we're going to walk through it, and then we're going to take communion in just a moment. But Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord. Now, this is David writing. The Lord says to my Lord. Now, first you're going to read this and go, I don't really get all that, but you will. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. This is a incredible psalm. And in this psalm, Psalm 110, there are two ideas that are introduced and these, these two ideas is what the whole of Scripture sits on. It's actually the whole of Christianity sits on these two ideas that are, that are brought up and laid out in this psalm. And it's this. Jesus, our Messiah, is our great King, and He is our 
high priest. Now, we hear that, we go, okay, I don't, how does all this work? And I don't know, drinking water by the brook, and who's this Melchizedek guy? I, what is all this stuff? And those are great questions because they're a part of God's story and actually types and shadows of what God's been doing from the very beginning. This is, it's, it's, it's incredible when you see the heart. And this, this psalm explains who Jesus is and what he came to do. And it explains what he has done for you personally in your life. And he lays it out. This psalm, what's interesting in the New Testament, it's quoted 33 times. Jesus quotes it. Peter quotes it. On the day of Pentecost, writer of Hebrew quotes it. It's the proof text of the identity of the purpose and the mission of Jesus. So let's look at verse 1. Says this, the Lord says to my Lord, now listen, I want you to picture David is listening here, he's listening in to a conversation that's happening between God the Father and God the Son. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now, this is capitalized because this is Yahweh, this is God. This is Lord, which is Adonai, which actually means master. So, it says, Yahweh, or God says to my master, this is David, God says to my master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So God is telling this to David's master, who is the son. I want you to see this. Yahweh, God said to my master. So what I want you to catch, so David is, he's, he's already the, the greatest king of Israel. David, the man after God's own heart. The one who had a relationship with God and we, and like no other. The greatest king writing this acknowledges there are two persons. He's listening to this conversation between two people and he acknowledges that both of them are higher and greater than he is. God and my master. And this is something we need to understand. But this, this begins to show us what's going on. God is giving glimpses and he's giving these little flashes of light about what's to come. And he has entrusted David with hearing in on this conversation. And he goes on to say, sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies your footstool. God says to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. I want you to catch this for a second. This is not, this is not one of them doing it. This is, this, this is, they are doing it together. This is a partnership. This is, though God is, is three persons, he is one. And this is the father and the son together accomplishing what was spoken about from the very beginning of the Bible. Getting mankind back into relationship with God. Look how Jesus explains this passage. So this, this is a big deal. On the Tuesday before Jesus was crucified. On that Tuesday, and he was crucified on Friday. So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Oh, three, like three and a half days before he was crucified. Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders of, 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 the, uh, of Judaism... We're always trying to trap Jesus. They're always trying to ask him questions so they could say, gotcha. They were wanting to cancel him, but he wouldn't give them. He, they just couldn't do it. And so after they asked him and with all these questions, this is what Jesus says. Now this, this is, Psalm 110 was very well known. Very well known. It was seen as a messianic passage that's pointing to Jesus. And so this is what, this is the interaction of Jesus. Now, when the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Now, this is the Messiah. Now, they know they've been set aside. They know they are Abraham's, uh, Abraham's bloodline. They know all the prophecies are pointing that the Messiah will come through their bloodline, the bloodline of Abraham. Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, they're like, what do you mean? He's of one of us. We're the Jews. Hello? 
The Messiah is going to come through us. So they said, well, the son of David, which is correct. He said to them, how is it then, uh-oh, that David in the spirit calls him Lord, master, saying, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And they're like, never thought of that before. So Jesus, and even for us today, because this may be the first time you've ever kind of looked at it this way, you're, you're still trying to wrap your head around it a little bit, but that's okay. But, but Jesus himself says, hey, um, just real quick. So if, if the son of David is going to be the Messiah, and Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm, and we all agree, then why is David calling his son his master? That's not how it usually works. And so, after he asked the question, no one was able to answer. And they didn't dare ask him any more questions. <laughs> so, Jesus, though, is doing this. He's citing this verse to prove that the Messiah is more than just a physical descendant of David. This is a plan that's been in place for a long time. This is the reality that, that Jesus is, is telling them this Messiah, that himself, yes, I am from the line of David, but I'm much I'm much greater than what you realize. I'm also God. And they didn't see it. The Hebrew, in Hebrews, it's quoted, this, this passage in Psalm 110 is quoted to prove that Jesus is greater than the angels. And what Jesus is saying is that God became flesh. What, what's going on right here? Jesus, I want you to catch this. Jesus is talking about this, the incarnation right here. He's speaking that Psalm 110 is, is pointing to the incarnation that God would send his son who is fully God, but also is fully man. It's the understanding that in order to save us, God has to become one of us. In order to take the punishment that human humanity deserves, God himself will bring, lower himself to become humanity but he will be perfect. Though we are born corrupted, he was not born corrupted. Though we will fall and fail, he did not fall or fail. Jesus lived the perfect life. He was holy, he was righteous. He was the perfect sacrifice for you and I. And while he came to this earth, while he lived it out, while God sent him, he was doing it to be in relationship with you and give you your true identity, why he created you, why he created humanity back in the garden. He came to restore to us back to what he originally had for us. That's good news. And what I love about Psalm 110 is I've already mentioned that it's, it's, the, it's Jesus standing as one with God against the enemies of God's creation. This is a psalm that's a prophetic symbol of what's to come from the ministry of Jesus three and a half days after he had this conversation. He surrendered himself. Please understand no one, no human killed Jesus. Jesus said, no one takes my life. I lay it down willingly. Though, yes, humanity were pawns in the hand of God, while the enemy thought he was actually killing the Son of God. Scripture says, Paul says that if, if Satan would have known the purpose of the death, burial, and resurrection, never, he never would have crucified, he never would have tried to get Jesus crucified. But here's the deal. Satan was, thought he was doing something against God. God was using Satan and the pawns of evil men in those times to his own purpose and to his own good. Why? For you because you couldn't do it on your own. 
And this idea that, that Jesus is going to, we're, we're going to see that God and Jesus together are going to destroy our enemies and their enemies. This passage mentions about a footstool. The footstool, which is a symbol of complete and total victory. That this Messiah, God's chosen king, who is our king. This is why we need a king. We need a king who says, who gets his people and says, hang on a second. I'm calling you out. You're not, you, not going to get to my people. I'm going to defend them and come here. I'm going to pop your little head underneath my foot. That's what our king has done. And that's the idea. We need a king. And here you see, you, you see the prophetic, you, the prophetic voice of what's, happen, or what's going to happen when Jesus goes to the cross. That God's chosen king would place his feet or foot on the neck of his defeated enemies. This, this, the, then this whole idea, wow, Jesus is the conquering king. Then it moves into speaking of a reversal. So it's just not about destroying the enemy. It's about reversing what the enemy has done. And how the world rejects the king. The world rejects his kingdom. The world rejects his truth. How humanity rejected Jesus. The psalm leads into the prophetic voice of what's actually going to happen. Actually what's going to happen, Jesus... Their evaluation of Jesus, of King Jesus, which they think, oh, he's weak. Hey, they put a symbol up above his cross and said, hey, King of the Jews. They beat him and said, hey, prophet, tell us who hit you while you're blindfolded. Their evaluation of his, of his kingship is he was nothing. He was, he was worth nothing. And so they mocked his kingship. But the next verse goes on to speak of their evaluation of Jesus is now turned on its head by the powers of heaven. And it goes on to say, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. This is God and the Son the son moving forward with his mighty scepter. This mighty scepter is a symbol of the king's absolute and total domination, strength, authority, power. But once again, it's in partnership with the father. And this, the scepter extends from Zion, the land, the, the nation that God carved out to preserve his people so he could bring forth now the Messiah. This scepter extends from Zion extends from the people that were set apart, but it doesn't stop until all of the enemies are his footstool. He rules in their midst. This language literally means the Messiah will sit with his feet on the enemy's neck and he will rule as king. That's good. You need a king like that. You need a king like that. Now check this out. We're mentioned in this next passage. This next passage, God telling Jesus, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. That's us. In holy garments. Where'd we get these holy garments from? I'm not holy. Apparently someone purchased them for us by his own blood, Jesus. On the day, we're going we're to stand freely with him. In other words, willingly, of our own will. I'm with you, Jesus. You're my master. In our holy garments, from the womb of the morning to the dew of your youth, will be yours. This, this is just a reality of strength and freshness and life. And we're mentioned. So this Messiah, Jesus... That, that David is seen in 110. Now we look back and go, oh, I see it. We'll have followers. We'll have disciples who freely join him in the day of battle. And with great joy and immediate obedience, we, the people of God, will obey his commands. 
And they're following their king. And you can hear the words of, of, of us disciples and the followers and how David sees it, of the Messiah. They, these, these followers, these disciples, now I want you to hear this today. This is who we are to be today. Have fully and totally seen and submitted themselves to the greatness of this Messiah, Jesus. They acknowledge his superiority. They acknowledge he is their master. That we gladly give up anything for him and do anything that he would ask us to do. Nothing is too great for these people. For them to, to do for their king. Nothing is too great for them to give up on behalf of their king. Because they stand in the midst of the family of God. It is their purpose. It is their calling. There, there's, there's none of this, hey, Jesus, will you, will you just come and meet me where I am? And can you adapt some of who you are to fit me? No, no, no. These are people who say, oh, by the grace of God, I was corrupt. I was nothing. I was sin itself. But Jesus, because of you, I have, you have given me a new life, a new mind, a new heart, new desires. I don't define who I am. You define who I am. I don't define how I live my life. You define how I live my life because I'm all yours. They are strong, they are ready, they are his, and he is theirs. A commentator, Walter Chantry, writes in a, uh, in a writing, Praises for the King. I want you to listen how, how he writes and how we should respond to King Jesus. Anyone who has caught a glimpse of the heavenly Splendor. Might have been with Christ who do dwell to imitate the saints of old passage. That's some old English there, but then we'll get to this. It is only appropriate to worship him with deep reverence. You may pour out great love. Now listen to this. In recognition of your personal relationship with him. He is your Lord. You are his and he is yours. However, you are not your own. He is Lord and master. You are servant and disciple. He is infinitely above you in the, in the scale of being. It is wrong to sway, it is wrong to sway over or to allow his kingship to sway over you and you think it's about you. We, as followers of Jesus, see Jesus as our king. We honor him. We obey. We confess and we worship because he is our king. He is not our pal. He's not our homie. He's not our bro. He is conquering King Jesus. Then David moves from the Messiah in kingship and he moves to the great high priest. Verse four, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So in the Old Testament, the office of king and priest, so just hang with me for a second, were separate roles. They were never one. They were separate. But now this Messiah, our Messiah, has both roles. He's king and he's priest. The priest of the Old Testament made sacrifices on behalf of the people for God. But they were just priests. The kings ruled, but they were not priests. They made decisions to conquer the enemies of God's people. So the one who rules God's people and the one who intercedes between God and man, what David's saying is going to be the same person. We know that as Jesus. And so David brings up this, this king, this, this king and priest from Genesis 14. His name is Melchizedek. And this dude, Melchizedek, appears out of nowhere, then he's gone in a flash. It's like, where'd he go? That's a great question. 
He's only mentioned three times in the Bible. And now in the middle of the foundational prophetic psalm, David hears God talking to Jesus about this priest, Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was a priest before being a priest was a thing. Melchizedek was a priest before. Now remember, God told Moses, hey, this is how I want you to worship me. This is now where I want your priest, this is what I want the priest to look like. This is, I want all the priests to come from the line of Aaron. But actually, this priest and king shows up before the law. Now the law was given to, to the Jewish people to preserve them, to preserve their bloodline, so that they wouldn't be seduced by the other nations and by other gods and the other worship and all the, the pagan and, and, and all that kind of stuff that was going on so that they could remain pure so that Jesus could come through them. But now Melchizedek was before the priest was a thing. He was a priest unto God outside and before the law. Now this is a, this is a little heady for a moment, but just stick with me. It's a good thing. And his name, Melchizedek, means this. Catch this. King of righteousness. In his day, Melchizedek was king and priest. David is writing that God, God's affirming to his son. And also David is affirming to us that this Messiah will be king and will be priest. Here's the other thing about Melchizedek. Melchizedek didn't have a beginning of reign and he didn't have an end of reign. And so he says, you will be like Melchizedek. In other words, you will be king and priest forever. No one will ever succeed him. And his king and priestly role will not be because he's from the line of Aaron. It will be because he is, he is the one true king and one true priest. And all those other priests that we see in scripture, they were shadows. They were types of the real thing. They were, they, they were types of the real thing. In other words, they would go before God and offer sacrifice on behalf of the people. They, that was a type and a shadow. That wasn't the real thing. Because the real thing would come in. Now this priest, the Messiah priest, would, would be king. He would also be priest. And as he would make his sacrifice, he would not use an animal. He would use his own life on behalf of the people because he is God. He would use his own human humanity on behalf of the people. And the altar is the cross. And the forgiveness is through his blood. But this is one who will be exalted and his kingship will reign forever. So his priesthood, the Messiah, you guys with me? Say, I'm with you. If you're confused, say, I'm, a conf I'm confused. Okay, maybe a couple, that's fine. But this says that the priesthood of Jesus would be like no other priest. He would be a priest for all nations. He'd be a priest for all people, not just in Israel. He'd be a king and a priest, and his reign will be without beginning and without end. Friends, this is our king, and this is our priest. And like Abraham, who saw Melchizedek, there was this encounter. This is, this is super cool. It's, it's, and, and Melchizedek is associated with this victory that, that was given to Abraham. But like Abraham saw Melchizedek as associated with his victory, the Messiah, Jesus, will be victorious in battle on behalf of us. And we will seek him as the very reason our enemies and our foes have been defeated. We'll say, it ain't because of me. It's because of Jesus. This is, the, this is Jesus who initiated the new order, what's called the new covenant. The new covenant that will show the way for believers to enter heaven. Then we come to the last three verses. And these three verses speak of the Messiah, Jesus, our great high priest. He is not weak. He is not wimpy. These last three verses move us into the book of Revelation. Because you have to understand the work of Jesus is still manifesting on the earth. So he hasn't returned yet. He, he hasn't risen the believers who are asleep or who, he hasn't given us new bodies whether you think, bless you, see, you need a new body. <laughs> We're still corrupted. 
So his work hasn't fully been done yet in our life, his dominion, his rule. But this speaks of it. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpse. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is about completion. This is about the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is about us completing our purpose as, as his people on, on this earth, being lights in the midst of darkness, being salt in the midst of, of very difficult times, being heralders of truth, living a life that's different from the rest of the world. And this day will come. But this whole passage of 110 brings us to this reality of this psalm reveals that we needed someone to come and conquer our enemies and someone to come and save us from our own selves. That's just the reality. It reminds us of that today. So if we can, let's stand to our feet. And we're going to take communion. We're going to take communion, and I want you to catch this today. We're going to take communion so that you can fully understand that the work of Jesus in your life was not because you earned it, not because you deserve it, not because you did something to get it. It was because God, in his love and kindness towards you, knowing you were depraved, you had no good within yourself. This Psalm reveals, now hear me today, we cannot save or free ourselves. We can't. We cannot, we cannot fix ourselves. We need a king who can crush the head of the enemy. We need a priest who can forgive us and give us a new life. And the answer for our problem, which is us, our very, down to our DNA, our very bones, the answer to that problem cannot be us because we are the problem. So that Christianity is not about making you a better version of you. No, you stinks. Christianity is that Jesus, by his care and love, sent his son. That once you put your faith in him, the old things pass away and all things become new. You are free from the curse of sin on your spirit. You have access to now healing in your mind, healing in your, in your thoughts, healing in your body, healing in your emotions. You have access to your broken heart being healed and restored. You can't do it, but Jesus can. That's the reality of Psalm 110. This is the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel isn't, isn't, hey, don't feel bad. It's okay. Don't, you can, it's okay for you to do whatever you want. Just know that God loves you. That's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is realizing I was born a sinner. I didn't become sinful. I didn't transition into sinfulness. Sin's living in me. Sin is who I am. I can't beat it, and I can't get over it, and I keep falling down again. I, it's who I am. And we don't like that because we are here our whole lives that we're good. We're not good. The gospel points this out to us. Sin is a part of our DNA. I am the problem. 
I am. Not something that's outside of me. No, something that's inside. And the heart of the gospel is you cannot blame for your sin. You can't blame your desires for your sin because your desires are sinful. You can't blame your heart for your sin because the Bible says your heart is deceitful. You can't blame the systems around you. You can't blame the government. The gospel of Jesus Christ invites us to see ourselves as we really are. We were born the problem. And in those moments that you realize actually, this is what the gospel says, we then repent. We then see the love of God. We confess, Lord, I realize I'm the problem. It's me. It's who I am, it's what's inside of me. And we say, but Jesus, I believe you came to save me from me, from my sin. I put my trust in you. I put my hope in you. That you, Jesus, became everything that I am. Cursed on a cross. You would be beaten so much, it would be like men would want to hide their faces from you. And I realize today, God, I, 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 like Isaiah 53 says that I'm, I'm like a sheep. Just like the sheep I see, it says that all have gone astray. All have gone their own way. And I see, God, that the punishment that I deserved was placed upon you. And you did it willingly for me. That's the gospel. Recognize your depravity. Confess that you are sinful. Ask Jesus to cleanse you and forgive you of your sins. And put your faith in his death, burial, and resurrection. That he did it for you. And those who do that will be saved and a part of his kingdom. You will rule and reign with him. But he remains your Lord and your master. You do what he says. And the reward of obeying him is the greatest joy you will ever have in your life. And so today, we recognize the body of Jesus, the Messiah that we just read about in Psalm 110. That we put our faith in his body who represented us as humanity. And by the stripes on his back, we've been healed. By the beatings on his body, we can put our faith in him. We can put our faith that now, Jesus, the punishment I deserve was placed upon you. You became everything that I was or that I am so that I could become everything that you are. And righteous, who, what is it? He's righteous, he is holy, he is right before God. And so his body, this represents the body of Jesus, broken for you. And when we do this, we do this in remembrance of that fact, that he himself had you on his mind as he took your punishment. Let's see. This little cup of juice, nothing special about it. But you know what is special? What it reminds us of. That he poured out his blood for you. For you. Because you couldn't pay for your own sins. 
And this blood represents all those who put their faith that his blood covered them and forgave, forgave them and cleansed them. Could live a life without shame or guilt. Oh, what a beautiful thing. Could live a life free from your past mistakes. Can live a life free. And you put your faith that his blood purchased you. You don't belong to yourself. He purchased you. And you're so thankful you don't belong to yourself because you who yourself was. Lord, have mercy. But he gave you a new life. And so we drink this today, remembering that our life isn't ours, that we are the children of God because of Jesus. Let's drink together. Father, we thank you today of your beautiful, beautiful heart and love towards us. Lord, I want to thank you for this prophetic psalm that lays out the reality of Jesus. And Lord, today I want to pray that all of us here have a new understanding of our condition before you, that we would not be tempted to return to shadows of the past. We would not be tempted to return to the sins that plagued us before we were set free. That Lord, today we lift our eyes and we lock them on you. And we declare you are our Lord and you are our master. And so Lord, today may we leave here understanding the great beauty of your care and love for us. If you could just remain with your heads bowed for a moment. If you're here today and nobody's looking around and you recognize that you have not given your life to Jesus and you would want to do that today, nobody's looking around just as a sign of faith. If you want to give your life to Jesus and become a part of his family, just raise your hand right where you are right now and receive the grace of the Lord. Just raise it up. Thank you. Bless you. Thank you. Thank you. You can put your hands down. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. It just acknowledges what you've already put your faith in, and that's Jesus. So let's pray together, church. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I recognize I'm a sinner, and I put my faith in you, Jesus, and what you've done for me through your death, through your burial, and through your resurrection. And from this moment forward, I'm yours. Do with me as you want. In Jesus' name, we all say amen and amen. Come on. Let's get